Well, let's pray as we uh, get started in our time in the Word. Thank you, Lord, that we can worship you together, and thank you that part of that worship is your speaking to us. So open our hearts now to hear from you. May your Word penetrate deeply, and may you teach us, Lord, in a fresh way what it means to love you this morning. May your spirit be strong in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like most men, I think, when I got married, I thought I was loving my wife pretty well. I mean, after all, you know, I was providing for her. I was even helping around the house some. And being romantic now and then, I mean, she ought to be totally thrilled with that, right? And it was a shock to me to realize that wasn't all that she wanted. That she wanted to be loved in other ways more deeply than that. She wanted to share in my heart. She wanted to share in my life. And so I had to learn to listen. And I had to learn to see what her heart was longing for. That she wanted quality time. That she wanted more of me rather than just outward. Well, we're told that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And we've heard that many times. But what does that really mean? What does it mean practically for us to love God? What does that look like in our lives? I think, you know, if you asked us, what does it mean to love God? We would probably maybe say something like, well, you know, it's to come to church, it's to uh, worship him, give him praise, and I think that delights his heart. I think he likes it when we do that. It's a sacrifice of praise. Or we might say, well, it's to get involved in serving him, so get involved in the church and be busy for him. But is that really what he's looking for? Well, fortunately, God's a great communicator, (laughs) And he tells us, I think, what it means to love him in a practical way in Proverbs chapter 3, where we are today, to help us understand what it means to love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's look together at Proverbs chapter 3 to get a sense of what it means for us practically to love God. Now let me remind you, we are in Proverbs and we are in the ten lessons in the home. Ten lessons of a father and a mother teaching their children what it means to walk with God, teaching them wisdom. And this is really a central passage, Proverbs chapter 3. It's a long chapter. We are only going to look at the first 12 verses this morning because I think it's the primary part of this chapter. We'll be talking about wisdom and the importance of wisdom later, so we're going to wait on that. But we are going to look in the first 12 verses and look at Five different ways that I believe God has called us to love him, to give us a picture of what it means to truly love God. You might say these are the five love languages of God, the ways he likes to be loved. begins this way, chapter 3, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. So there's ten lessons. Everyone begins in a similar way. The father calling the son to say, you need to listen to this. 
Life only works when you're in right relationship with God. So I'm teaching you this lesson. It's how he begins each of his ten lessons. Listen up. It will bring blessing to your life. So the first love language we see in, verse, in verses 3 and 4 says this, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Love and faithfulness, the father says. He says, son, let these characterize your life. These two things, love and faithfulness. Now, the word for faithfulness is a word that's often translated truth. It has this idea that there's reality out there. And when you're connected with reality and you're living according to what's true, what's right, you are a faithful person. So it can mean either one, love and truth, love and faithfulness. And it says, these are what should characterize your life, son. This is what people should see when they look at you. Think about this. He says, bind them around your neck. As you're walking around in life, you you notice what people have bound around their neck, right? It's visible to other people. He says, these things, these qualities, love and faithfulness, love and truth, should characterize your life in a way that when other people look at your lifestyle, they should say, wow, that person is a loving person. That person is a faithful person. That person lives in line with truth. Truth characterizes who they are. So the father says, son, focus on these. You see, if you love God, it changes the way you live. It changes your morality It makes you more in line with who he is. And in fact, I think part of what he's saying is he says these should be visible to you, I mean to other people, when you hang them around your neck. But he also says write them on the tablet of your heart. He says they should be the reality in your heart that flows over into your life. So son, pursue these. Love and faithfulness. Love and faithfulness. Now, I'm struck by this because, as I shared a while ago, there was a study done by, a survey done by George Barna that asked non-Christians, the non-Christian world, what, what characterizes Christians? If when you look at Christians, what do you think of? What stands out to you? And by far and away, the top characteristic was judgmentalism along with hypocrisy, condemnation, other qualities like that. When they look at Christians, they say, this is what they're like. They're judgmental. And yet the father teaches the son, and he says, we should not be known, son, by what we condemn, by the way we point fingers at the world for not being like us. We should be known by how well we love by how well we reach out to the hurting, by how well we care for them, by how well we reach out to them. I I was struck by Anne's testimony that she said she was touched as she was learning to serve people and saw Christians that were loving and reaching out and caring for others, and she saw Christ in them. And it's awakened in her a sense that she wants to use her life to do that, to touch other lives as well. Isn't that a marvelous thing? That is what God has called us to be. Love and faithfulness hanging around our necks so other people see it. So that we're known by those. And 
I believe the son, as he hears those words from the father, it would stick in his mind, love and faithfulness, love and truth, you know, those are qualities of God. Because all through the Old Testament, those are primarily described as qualities of God. The word for love, chesed, loyal love, covenant love, God is described over and over again as one who loves us, who's committed to us, who is for us. He looks at us in our sin and he continues to reach out to us and care for us and forgive us. That's why he sent Jesus to die for us. God is is a God of love. He's also a God of faithfulness. You can trust that he will be reliable. He does not change. He's a God of truth that reveals reality to us. And I believe the son would hear that and it would think, he would probably think of passages and we could look at many, but just let me read a couple. Psalm 86, verse 15, says this, But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Love and faithfulness. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. And I believe the psalm would say, wow, here's what, God, here's what my dad's asking me to do. He's asking me to imitate the Father, the Heavenly Father. He's asking me to imitate God. And I believe that's the first love language of God, when we imitate Him. You've heard the saying, Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It's this idea that God wants us to imitate him because we were created to be in right relationship with him and to be like him, to become more and more like him. He's a God of love and faithfulness, so he wants us to be people of love and faithfulness. So look at the way God responds to you and respond to other people that way. That delights the heart of God. That's the way He longs to be loved, to imitate him in that way. So that's a primary part of how he calls us to be. A a reminder in in 1 John, in the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Many of you probably memorized this passage. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love doesn't know God because God is love. primary way we express our love for God is in how we love other people. Love and faithfulness. So if you love God, you'll act like Him towards others. You will imitate Him. The second love language that I see in this passage is in verses 5 and 6. He wants us to trust Him. Trust Him. Verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, or better, know him. And he will make your paths straight. So he begins, and he says, Son, here's the second characteristic of your life that you need to have that's part of loving God, is that you trust him. And do not lean on your own understanding. So there's a parallel there. Trust, lean. What does it mean to trust God? We talk about that. But what does it mean? Well, it helps because he says, lean, do not lean on your own understanding. Instead, lean on God. To lean is to 
like with a staff or a crutch, to put your weight on something, to stand on the floor, to stand on the chair. Put your weight on it. That's what it means to trust. God wants us to trust in Him, put our weight on Him and not lean on something else. You see, there's many things throughout the Old Testament that it says that we tend to lean on or trust in as people. Let me just read a couple of them, describe others, but uh, in Proverbs chapter 11, just over a few pages, verse 28, it says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. We can trust in leaders. We can trust in weapons. Isaiah chapter 31. We can trust in our own strength, our own abilities. Isaiah 31 verse 1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. It's a reminder that we... We look to other things for help before we look to the Lord first. And what the Lord wants is for, us for, is for us to trust in Him. In Jeremiah chapter 7, it's a passage, wonderful passage, where Jeremiah is challenging the people because it says they've trusted in the temple instead of in God. Now wait, the temple was where they went to worship. But they were saying, the temple, the temple, the temple. We have the temple, therefore God's on our side. We're going to win. Everything's great. And Jeremiah says, no, because you're trusting in the temple, in being religious, rather than in God. And within a few years, God destroyed the temple so that they would learn to trust in God, not in their religious symbols, not in their religiosity, not in anything else but him. We can trust in our own achievements. We can trust in idols, things we put in our heart before him. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul is describing, the Apostle Paul, how he was going through a tough time and he thought he was going to die. He says, we despaired even of life. In verse 9, 2 Corinthians 1, it says, Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You see, we can tend to trust in ourselves as well. So there's all kinds of things we can put our weight on, we can rely on, other than God himself. And notice in this passage what he says in Proverbs chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, all that you are, and lean not on your own understanding. One of the things we tend to lean on is our own understanding. We tend to think, well, you know, I know God says this, but I don't know if that's quite right, and, and you know, I've figured it out, and this is what I think is right and what's best. You see, we rely on our own ability to figure out life. And he's saying, don't do that, son, but trust in him. Lean on what he says. It's a good reminder that we're limited in our view that when... Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit and sin entered the world. It tainted every part of us. There's a theological perspective that's it's called total depravity. Okay? 
It does not mean that everything about us is sinful. That's not what it means. It means that every part of our lives has been touched by sin. And it's important we recognize that, that even our minds have been touched by sin. And therefore, when we look at life, we look at life through a fog. It's not clear. Paul says we see through a glass darkly. We don't really see reality very well. And so that should give us a humility to not trust in our own understanding the way we look at life and figuring it out, but learn to trust in Him and believe that God has revealed reality to us by His Word and by His Spirit so that we don't have to trust in our own ability to figure everything out. Over in Proverbs 16, verse 25, it says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end... It leads to death. Do you get that? That's a reminder that, you know, we can think about life and think, well, this looks like the right path to go. This looks like the best way to go. And he says, though, in the end, it leads to death too often. So if we're trusting in God, we're not going to trust in our own ability to figure out. Let me, let me give you an example or two. Jesus makes it very clear that to follow him to imitate him, to walk in his steps, means to die to ourselves. It means what we're to do is take the last place, to become a servant. If you want to be great in his kingdom, become a servant of all. Now think about that. That's counterintuitive for us. We think if we're going to become great, then we need to kind of push ourselves to the front and and try to take care of ourselves, make sure we're taken care of, make sure we demand our rights make sure we're in charge, and we promote ourselves. That's the natural way we think. But to trust in Him and not our own understanding is to say, you know what, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to lean on you and what you say. Die to myself, serve and put others first. And I'm going to trust you to exalt me at the proper time. Or, for example, Jesus says, love your enemies. That's counterintuitive. We would think, no, I need to protect myself from my enemies. It's okay to hate my enemies. They've been bad to me. Those people have hurt me. And so we get angry, and it's in our understanding, that seems the right way to go. But Jesus says, no, love your enemies. If they ask for your cloak, give them your coat too. If they ask you to go one mile, go two. And he, he says, no, in following him, It's an entire different way to look. And this is the way life works in the universe that God has created. So you begin to get a sense here what it means to trust him and not lean on your own understanding. And then it says, verse 6, in all your ways, know him. I I don't really like the translation, acknowledge. I understand why they've translated it that way. But in my thinking, to acknowledge him means Okay, and as I go through my life, as I do all the different things in all my ways, I just acknowledge, okay, God's there, now I'll go do my thing. But it's very different when you have a perspective, in all your ways, know him. It's a word for intimacy. It's a word that's used for marriage, intimacy. And so it's this picture that in every part of your life, you are going to know him intimately and include him in your life and have him be part of your life. We're so good in our culture today at compartmentalizing our lives. 
You know, we've got our Christian part of our life. Sunday morning, maybe five or ten minutes a day in the morning, maybe a Bible study or whatever, but then the rest of our lives, God's not really there. And we've got our work world and our play world and our family world, etc. But what he's saying here, the Father's teaching the Son, if you want to love God, you need to know Him in every area. Seek to know Him intimately at work. Seek to know Him intimately in your play. It's okay to play, but include God in an intimate way. Include Him intimately in your worship. Don't just go through the motions. Include Him intimately in your family life. Know Him there. Let Him be an intimate part of it. You see, that is what God longs for. He wants to be part of every area of our lives, not just part. He wants us to have an integrated life. Just like I've discovered from my wife, she she wants to be part of my whole life, not to just be one compartment, and neither does God. So we are to trust Him. Third, the third love language of God I see in this passage is He wants us to fear Him. Verse 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. What does it mean to fear the Lord? We, we hear that a lot. Well, it's to reverence Him. It's, but it doesn't mean to be afraid of Him necessarily. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? Here's one way to look at it. To fear the Lord is to recognize how awesome He is, how all-powerful, how all-wise, how in control He is, how sovereign He is. So as you look at how great He is, then you begin to orient your life around that. So you won't be so wise in your own eyes because if you realize how great he is, you realize that our wisdom is so limited and our way of looking at life is so limited that we'll want to get wisdom from him. So we won't be wise in our own eyes. Okay? We'll be seeking him. We'll recognize, you know what? I don't see life clearly. I'm a fool if I'm trying to be independent and run life on my own. I need him, so I fear him. And I recognize... He's the one who defines what's right and wrong. So he says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think you've got it together. Fear the Lord and shun evil. If I fear the Lord, then I realize, you know, sometimes evil doesn't seem that bad to me. In fact, it's pretty attractive. (laughs) There's things about evil that are attractive. But to recognize, you know what? God says evil is bad. And I fear him enough that even though in my own eyes it doesn't always appear that bad, I'm going to seek to do what's right because he knows what's best, he is awesome, and I want to follow him. You see what it means to fear the Lord in a, in a practical way? And besides, he tells us a lot of times, don't be wise in your own eyes because that is destructive. Over in chapter 26 of Proverbs, he says this in verse 12, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 26:12. So fearing God above yourself is orienting your life around his awesome presence. And notice what the result will be in verse 8. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Literally, first part of that verse says it'll bring healing to your body. 
and nourishment to your bones. Healing to your body. Literally, it's, it will bring healing to your navel. Anybody need your navel healed right now? <laughs> I think what he's saying there is he's saying, if you fear the Lord, put him first, consider him awesome, bring him into every part of your life, it'll be like having an umbilical cord attached to him where you're constantly being nourished, constantly receiving his life, his spirit, his encouragement, his love. Because you're in right relationship with Him. You're trusting the Creator. You're counting on Him, putting your weight on Him rather than on yourself. You'll have an integrated whole life. So he says, if you want to love God, son, imitate Him, trust Him, fear Him. And then fourthly, honor Him. Honor Him, verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Well, here we go, talking about money. <laughs> the Father wants the Son to know, and He wants us to know, God wants us to know, that one of the primary ways we can love God is through what we have. And notice He says, honor Him with your wealth, which is what you've already accumulated, your possessions, your money, your bank accounts, etc. That's your wealth. But then he says also, with the first fruits of all your crops. What is that? That's your income. That's what you receive as you do your work. So he says, both from what you already have and what you get as income, honor the Lord. The word honor there means to give weight to, to glorify, to seek to further his kingdom. So he's saying, son, if you really want to love God, Use your possessions, use all that you have to glorify God, to honor Him. How do we do that? It's one thing to say it, but how do we actually honor Him, glorify Him with what we have? Well, let me give you some suggestions. One thing is, it depends on how you look at your possessions. Do you see all that you have as His, not yours? Do you look at it as, hey, this is mine, I've earned it, or do you say, no, God gave this to me, it's his, I'm merely a steward, he's loaned it to me, he's the owner of the universe, he's the owner of all I have, and therefore I see what I have as his, not mine. I think we honor God from our wealth also when we live within our means. When we live within our means. What do I mean there? God has promised to give us all that we need. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, housing, clothes, whatever you need, food, will be added unto you, Jesus says. God's promised to give you all that you need to live life. So I believe a way that we honor him is to live within that means, to see whatever he's given us as enough for us. We get into problems as people, in our culture especially, which tells us, you know, if you want something, go get it. Pull out the credit card. Yeah, you may go into debt. You may not have the money for it, but pull out the credit card, go borrow money, get a payday loan or whatever. 
but you should be able to have everything you want. That's not living within our means. See, honoring God from our wealth is realizing everything we have that he's given us should be enough for us. So I will live within that means and not dishonor him by spending more than he gives me. Third, I think we honor him when we give out of what we have to further his kingdom. When we see giving as an opportunity to participate in the kingdom of God, to love God, to bless him by furthering his kingdom, when we give to a church ministry, when we give to uh, outreach, when we give to missions, when we give to ministries, when we give to just friends we know are in need and we care for other people and love them, when we give to further his kingdom, it honors him. And it blesses his heart. Just in our own family, when we first were married, we had very little income. And every month, I just felt like, well, God, I would love to be able to give to you, but you know what? I don't have enough money. You know, I've got to take care of my family. I've got kids. We don't have much income. I'm barely scraping by. And, and so Jeannie and I struggled with that. But as we saw the reality of this principle, we began to see, no, God's calling me to honor him. And that's part of trust. That's part of love. And so we committed ourselves to give regularly out of whatever we got to give a regular percentage to the church, to to ministry, to give it away. And I'm not saying life has always been easy since then, but you know what? We've never really struggled since then. God has always provided an abundance. And that's what I love about verse 10. He says, If you honor the Lord with your wealth, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. I want you to get that picture. He doesn't say, Your barns will be so full you'll have to build bigger barns and bigger barns and bigger barns so you can hold all the stuff that God's given you. No, he says, what you have will begin to overflow so that others can be blessed with what you have. That's why God gives us wealth. It's okay to have wealth. It's okay to have possessions. It's okay to have things. But he wants us to use them to bless others. That's why he gives us an overabundance. So it will overflow so others can eat of it and drink of it and be blessed by what he has given us as his stewards. So we have the freedom to, to use what we have for his kingdom. Isn't that great? And I've got to say, being here at this church, you people are very giving. And I've been blessed so many ways, not just through your giving to the church, but in many other ways through you. And I thank you for that. But if you have not experienced the freedom of giving to others and blessing them and being part of God's kingdom and, and you feel like, gee, I don't know if I can trust God to give... I just want you to experience the blessing of having God use you to bless others. I'm not guaranteeing that everything's going to go easily or it won't get tight at times, but he's called us to do that and he promises to bless us spiritually and to provide everything we need so we can have an abundance to give to others. Now, I know when we talk about finances, it's tempting to feel guilty about it, um, we struggle with that. It's, it's hard. But if you're struggling or maybe you're in too much debt, maybe you have lived above your means 
or you just want advice on, okay, how do I incorporate this in my life? How do I really honor the Lord from my wealth? I want to encourage you. We have a couple of great administrative pastors here at Cole, Don Pettinger and Steve Harrell, who do a lot of financial counseling from a biblical point of view, and they can be of great help to you to think through what it means to live within your means, to get out of debt, and be able to begin to honor the Lord from your wealth, maybe in more profound ways than you've ever had the opportunity to do it. So that's fourth. Fourth love language of God is that we would honor him from our wealth. And then finally, fifth, he wants us to love him by submitting to his discipline. Verse 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. Let's just be honest. When God brings hard hard things into our lives, when he disciplines us, it's painful. It hurts. None of us like it. Okay? That's the reality. Because it's like he's taking a, a raw diamond that's just dirty and misshapen. And he starts chiseling away at it. And he's chiseling away at our lives, and that hurts as he chips off parts of us. But, but what he wants us to realize is he's doing that so that we can become more and more beautiful, so we can become more and more what he's created us to be, so that his life can be displayed in us and all its beauty as he shines his light in our lives. It just goes out so many can see how marvelous God is. So he says, don't despise it. Again, that's a natural reaction to despise it, to say, I hate this. I don't want to go through this tough time. But the father warns the son. He says, if you want to love God, don't despise it. Just, just be careful to not get angry, to not let anger or resentment take over, but to recognize God's hand in it. So how do we love God in this area by not despising the Lord's discipline? Well, we need to watch our attitude. Are we becoming resentful and angry at the hard things we're going through? Secondly, are we submitting to it? Are we learning to submit to whatever he brings in our lives, believing by faith? Romans 8.28. For, I was going to quote it, and I know it well, and let me read it. <laughs> for God caused all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And in the context, it's very clear what the good is. God will use everything for our good, and the good is to make us more like Jesus, to make us more like him so that we can display his beauty. It doesn't mean life will be easy, but it means God is shaping us in his love. Notice verse 12. Why should we not despise the Lord's discipline? Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. The word for love there is one of a passionate love in a family between a husband and wife, a heartfelt desire, a heartfelt love, or for a parent for a child, that kind of passionate love. And the Lord, and he's saying, son, I want you to understand that when you get disciplined, it's a sign of God's incredible love for you that he loves you enough to not leave you trapped in your selfishness, in your sin, in your brokenness, but he's shaping you into something whole and beautiful. So don't despise it. 
but see it, see it as part of his hand of love for you. You see, we are called to love God first and foremost in our lives. It's the greatest commandment. But what does it mean to love God? Well, I love this passage because I think it explains some very practical ways we can love him. It isn't just having warm feelings towards God. It's far more than that. It isn't just being busy for God. But rather, how God wants to be loved is for us to give our hearts to him, to trust him with all that we are, to bring him into every part of our lives, to believe by faith that what he says is true, that he knows best, and to believe that he's loving even when he brings pain into our lives. And the greatest proof of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. God proved his love, even when circumstances don't feel loving, he proved that he loves you because he died for you so you could be forgiven and receive love and receive life. So he says, the Father says to the Son and God says to you and me, let's imitate him. Let's express love and faithfulness. Let's lean on him, trust him. Let's fear him alone, exalt him and see him as awesome. Let's honor him with everything we have. Honor him from our wealth. And let's learn to submit with a willing attitude to his loving discipline. You see, the love of God touches all that we are. Just like a wife wants all of her husband's heart, even more so, God wants all of us. That is how God wants to be loved. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this passage that reveals so much to us about what it means to love you. And Lord, we confess we need you to work in our lives to draw us to yourself, to help us learn to trust you more. But thank you, you are at work disciplining us so that our hearts might be changed, that we might love you fully with our whole heart. Help us be people that express love and faithfulness, trust, fear of you, honoring you, and submitting to you. Thank you that you love us so much. Help us love you back. We pray in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen.